Mama said, come see you here. Yeah. These three were my best friends. I grew up with them. I got into trouble with them, chased girls with them. I enlisted with them. Now my friends are there. Covered in dirt and grass and eaten by worms. I don't want to have to visit my sons here. Daddy, I, I signed up already. I couldn't do otherwise, Pop. Everybody else is, is doing you it. ain't everybody else. Like everybody else jumps in, does things quick without thinking. You know, and soldiers who live, they live because they can do that. You can't. Like you gotta sit and think and pray about everything. I mean, look at you, you're doing it right now. But you won't be able to live with yourself if you go. No, I won't be able to live with myself if I don't. I'm gonna be a medic. And that's gonna be my way to serve. See, there you go, thinking it all out. But you figure this war is just gonna fit in with you? Your ideas? Well, I know, I don't doubt it's gonna be hard. It won't be hard, it'll be impossible. You know, whatever beliefs you have and your crazy head now, they won't ever play out. It don't work that way. And if by some, I don't know, miracle chance you survive, you won't be giving no thanks to God. Welcome again to Hope, everyone. My name is Eli. I'm one of the ministers on staff here at our Ankeny campus. And I grew up going to church, but in uh, the, the Christian tradition that I was a part of growing up, we didn't really celebrate Ash Wednesday or recognize uh, the season of Lent uh, in that particular denomination. We celebrated Easter. Every Christian denomination celebrates Easter, which is our, our celebration of Jesus' resurrection. The, the day that we recognize that Jesus overcame sin and death forever. It's a powerful, powerful holiday, the most important holiday on the church calendar every year, the miracle that we build our faith on. But what I realized in, in, as I got older in my faith and, and starting to um, wrestle with that, that, that reality, that, that miracle that, that Jesus overcame sin and death forever, I realized the important part of, of Ash Wednesday is giving us a day to wrestle with the reality of our mortality. That if Jesus overcame death, then it's important for us to recognize what death is and, and how it affects us and how we have a relationship with that part of our lives. That's what this holiday, this Ash Wednesday, is really for. It's a day for us to remember, like our Bible reading for today said in Psalm 103, that we are dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20 is, uh, is the famous verse that we usually recite at funerals. All come from dust and to dust all return. So as I got older and I continued exploring my Christian faith, days like today, like Ash Wednesday, became incredibly important for my faith. Getting ready for Easter, having the ability not just to, to, to jump into the celebration one day a year, but to spend a season of reflection, getting ready for that day to remember everything that Jesus has saved us from. So if for the next 40 days, which is this season of Lent starting today, if we can grow as a church in our appreciation of the sacrifice 
that God's Son made for us in his life and in his death, then when we arrive at Easter on April 9th this year, it will mean more to us than just another day on the calendar. And we have amazing things planned for that entire week, Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter services on Saturday and Sunday. It's going to be an amazing week of celebration, and I think all the more amazing when we spend the next 40 days recognizing everything that God has rescued us from. It's a a season for us of transformation, that we would be changed over the next 40 days as we get ready for Easter. And the church has always felt that way. The history of the church, Lent has always been about transformation, about change. In fact, in the early church in in the first century, right after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, when the church first began, if you wanted to, to join the church, if you wanted to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, receive that free gift of grace that he offers to all of us. And if you wanted to be baptized into the family of God, into the church, you could only be baptized on Easter Sunday. For the longest time, that was the only day you could be baptized as a Christian. And to get ready for that, you would spend a year or more in a process called catechesis. Depending on your religious tradition, that word might sound familiar to you. It was simply a training season that lasted for a year or more where, where you would walk alongside somebody else who was more mature in their faith and they would not just teach you about the things that Jesus taught, but they would show you how to live a life that reflected his. And after that year or more of training in the Christian faith, you would be ready for baptism, but on Lent, on Ash Wednesday, you would begin 40 days of fasting to, to, to get ready for your baptism on Easter Sunday. And we're going to talk a little bit about fasting because that's a part of this season too. But in the early church, one of the things that you would fast for, fast from for 40 days until your baptism, was taking a bath. In the first century church, if you're going to be baptized on Easter Sunday, you fasted from bathing for 40 days to get ready for it. Now, uh, one of our core values here at Hope is that we worship God and not tradition. And that means simply that where traditions are helpful, we we hold on to those things, like Ash Wednesday. You know, we we are glad as a church to continue the tradition of of recognizing the season of Lent, of all of what that means. But we also say that where tradition is is unhelpful, we feel okay about letting go of that. And we, we feel okay about, you know, not fasting from bathing for the next 40 days. Uh, And about baptism, you can get baptized any day. If you want to come up today and get baptized, you're more than welcome. But I bet you can appreciate the reason why that would be such uh, an important part of their tradition, of the tradition of the church in the first century. I mean, think about what baptism signifies. In the waters of baptism, we we are identifying ourselves with Jesus' death and his resurrection. And we we are accepting washing of ourselves internally of of all the gunk, of all the stuff that clings to our souls. So so in the early church, when they, they left off washing for 40 days and they got to their baptism on Sunday, you can imagine that they and their entire community, their whole church, were glad that they were finally being washed clean outside and inside completely renewed. 
and cleansed by Jesus Christ and their new relationship with him. That's what baptism is for. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's washed us clean. He is rescued from us. And even though we don't hold to that particular tradition anymore, we all come to God desperate in the exact same way. Stinking and filthy in the exact same way. All of us come to Jesus, needing him to wash us clean, needing him to rescue us from things that we cannot save ourselves from. That we know without him we are dust. And I think one of the miracles of of a day like today, again, is that we are reminded, we remember that God knows that we are dust. That God doesn't look at our condition of existing in a world full of chaos and filth And just completely disregard us or expect us to do the work of making ourselves clean. God sees us in this condition and he is the one who is willing to do something about it. That's our Bible reading for today from the Old Testament. If you're you're doing the, uh, uh, the whole Bible in a year that we're reading together as a church, that's our 2023. And there's a reading plan that includes the Old Testament readings as well as the New Testament in the Bible. One of the comments that we receive or the questions that we get is, is why does it seem like God in the Old Testament is, is angry, is violent, is destructive? And then why does it seem that in the New Testament with Jesus, God is full of grace and love and forgiveness? D- does God somehow change his mind or uh, does he ease up a little bit? And the answer is simply no. God is the same from beginning to end. God never changes. This is from the Old Testament. He knows how we are formed. He remembers we are dust from everlasting to everlasting. The Lord's love is with those who fear him. God sees you. God loves you. Now, now that love looks different over time. We think about the ways that we, we love each other, the, the love that we have for, for children or for relatives or for our friends. That can look different over time depending on how things change, but the love that God has for us never goes away, never changes. He loves you passionately because he sees where we are. And he was willing to do whatever it would take to rescue us from our condition. The clip that we watched at the beginning of of this message is from a a movie that came out a few years ago called Hacksaw Ridge. It won two Academy Awards the year it came out and uh, was nominated for four more, including Best Picture. It tells the the true story of of a real-life person in the military, um, the first conscientious objector in the United States military, though the character, the person, describes himself uh, more as a conscientious participator. Desmond Doss was his name, the the real combat medic uh, who this film was based on. He volunteered for service in World War II. Uh, He volunteered. He wasn't drafted. Um, And he ended up serving in the Pacific campaign. Uh, But there was an issue with his service because Desmond Doss was a Christian. He he believed in the teachings of Jesus. He believed in the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, that he was a part of the family of God. And he took seriously the commands that God has in Scripture. Specifically, the one that says, thou shalt not kill. And so Desmond Doss tried to reconcile, how can, I, how can I serve? How can I help? 
without breaking the law that God says is important. So Desmond Doss volunteered for the military, and he told them that he would participate in every training. He would go through basic training. He would do whatever it takes to become a combat medic, except he refused to even touch a weapon during training or for any part of his service. He wouldn't even touch a gun. And that caused a lot of problems, you can imagine. The expectation when a soldier joins the army is that you will fight and possibly kill as a part of your service. And so in this movie, they, they wrestle with, how do, you, how do you win a fight if you're not going to fight? Is that even possible? Because Desmond Doss saw that he could serve in a way that would allow him to live out his Christian faith. And in fact, it was because of his Christian faith that he decided to serve the way that he did. Let's take a look. There is only one question that any military court need ask of the accused. Do you deny disobeying Colonel Sangston's direct orders? Well, do you, Private? No, sir, I don't. Why are you contesting it, then? Why is it so important to you, given your refusal to even touch a weapon, to serve in a combat unit? Because when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, I took it personal. Everyone I knew was on fire to join up, including me. There were two men in my hometown. Declared 4F unfit, they killed themselves because they couldn't serve. I had a job in a defense plan. I could have taken a deferment, but that ain't right. It isn't right that other men should fight and die, that I would just be sitting at home safe. I need to serve. I got the energy and the passion to serve as a medic. Right in the middle with the other guys. No less danger, just... while everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Hmm. So how do you win a fight without fighting? How can you achieve victory in a battle without taking up a weapon? That's what these people in the, in the film wrestled with, what Desmond Doss wrestled with internally. It's what I still wrestle with, with the condition of our world no less chaotic, no less intent on tearing itself apart. We still live in a place that is consumed by, by war, by natural disasters, by, by mass shootings that happened yesterday in New Orleans that barely make the news anymore. We still live in a place that, that needs saving, that needs rescuing, that needs to be put back together again. How, is we, how, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ respond to that? Are we called to charge in, to, to, to fight back? Or does Jesus show us a, a different way? Because that's what 
I think about when I recognize the season of Lent, these next 40 days coming up to to April 9th when we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from death. The most important holiday in the Christian faith. Now, now some uh, might think, I thought that was Christmas. You know, isn't Christmas, that's the, the one that the culture really rallies around that we, we you know, go all out for, we seem to. Um, we celebrate Jesus' birth. It's full of joy and hope and happiness, good news for all people. That's, that's pretty easy for us to wrap our mind around. But as followers of Jesus, we know, we know that the reason Jesus came wasn't just to be born. The reason Jesus came wasn't just to teach us religious things, or even to show us a religious way of living life. The reason Jesus came was so that he could die. Jesus was born to die a very specific death for a very specific purpose, because it was only in dying that he could give us eternal life. If you've been around hope uh, for any length of time, you've probably heard myself or any of the other pastors or preachers talk about the paradoxes of the Christian faith. That, that a big part of what it means to believe in God, to have a relationship with Jesus, means trying to get comfortable with paradoxes. A paradox is uh, um, a self-contradictory proposition that on its face seems illogical. A statement like, Jesus was born to die. On its face, that seems illogical, but a paradox is also something that as you probe deeper, you realize that there is a a more deeply embedded truth in there somewhere. And it's difficult for us, I think, as human beings, we're wired to be more comfortable with, with black and white propositions, things that on their face are obvious. For us, it's a lot easier to think of the world in terms of good and bad, good guys and bad guys of winners and losers. It's not as easy for us to think in terms of of these paradoxes. And one of them that that we already mentioned, that um, Jesus was born, is itself a a paradox of our faith. We believe that that Jesus is 100% a human being, that, that he lived a human life, had a human body. He experienced pain. He experienced hunger and thirst. He laughed and cried. He knew what it was like to be fully human. But we also believe that Jesus is God's son, fully divine, 100% God, and that somehow Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Not 50-50, but 100% of each. That's a paradox of our faith. Similar to that, we believe that Jesus, as God's son, is one person of the Trinity of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we don't believe as Christians in three gods. We believe in one God that exists in three persons. The Greek word is prosopon or face. That somehow Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equals one God. And that Jesus is part of that. We believe also that there is a divine law for us. That God has given us specific moral instructions for how to live our lives that are important. Instructions like, thou shalt not kill. That that is actually a part of our faith, our religious tradition, that's important, that matters to God. Including the rest of the Ten Commandments and the other instructions that God gives us to live our lives by. Believing that that is 
the best way to live our life. But we also believe, paradoxically, that when, not if, but when we fail to uphold those moral instructions that God believes are so important for us, when we fail to uphold those perfectly, that there is grace. That God forgives us when we fail to live up to the moral standard of perfection. God knows, again, that we are dust, that we are not perfect. And so he gives us grace. And it doesn't mean that the law is not important. It doesn't mean that these instructions are all of a sudden off the table. It means that both exist side by side as a part of our relationship with God. I think our Bible reading in Psalm 103 really highlights this paradox perfectly. We started this Bible reading in verse 14, but the rest of the poem before that has some of the most beautiful verses, I think, in this passage. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Let's read that together out loud, just that one line. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Is that the the vision of God that you have today? Is that who God is to you? A God who is infinitely loving. A God who separates your sins from you. Who has done everything that we could not do for ourselves to rescue us, to set us free, to save us? Or is your vision of God something different? Is God someone who you view as angry or accusing? struggling, wrestling with that vision of God, that that he is upset with us somehow, and that we need to do things in order to earn his favor or to earn his love. Again, it could be one reason why you find yourself here tonight on Ash Wednesday. Like I said, one of the parts of Lent historically has been about fasting. And I don't know what comes to mind when you think of that practice or hear that word, For some people, I think the idea of fasting is equated to trying to do something to appease God's anger or to try and earn points with God. That that if if only I left this certain thing off or, or didn't do that thing anymore, maybe then God wouldn't be angry with me. So let's talk about fasting for a little bit. What's it for? Again, one approach, one thought around fasting is that it exists for us to try and get on God's good side. But what happens is that when we fail, not if, but when, we fail to live up to even our expectations, thinking that what God expects from us is, is a perfect moral life, which is not what he expects from you. What happens when we experience that judgmentalism around certain religious practices like fasting, we tend to swing the pendulum in the other direction and we think, well, fasting probably doesn't matter anymore because I can't, I can't earn God's favor. 
He, he forgives me. So even if I did the things that I would fast from, God would still forgive me. And he, he would. He will. Absolutely. So we, we leave off helpful spiritual practices like fasting, thinking there's no need to fast because we have forgiveness. Or I'm resistant to fasting because it feels too judgmental. Or maybe you just ignore it because it feels like another unhelpful tradition that doesn't really have a place in our world today. Whatever it might be, where you find yourself, whether you're resistant to it because it feels too judgmental or like you're trying to earn something, or you leave it off altogether because you know that we have grace and that God does not expect perfection from us, that God has sacrificed his son so that we could be set free. I think what we miss in those two extremes is, again, the paradox of what fasting is really meant for and where it is helpful for us. For thousands of years, humans have been fasting as a spiritual practice because there is something helpful in the practice of letting go of things that are unhelpful, of giving up something to gain more. That the paradox of Gaining something doesn't come from taking, it comes from letting go. I'm not a, a professional when it comes to, to fasting by any means, but um, monks sure are, Christian monks. So um, I've been reading a book, uh, uh, several books by an author named Luke Bell lately. Uh, Luke Bell is a monk in Carr Abbey in England. Before that, he studied and taught ling- uh, literature um, at Cambridge. So he writes these beautiful books about these spiritual practices that sometimes I think we miss. And there's one book that he writes called The Mystery of Identity. And in this book, he is exploring this this issue that I think for us today has become a very popular topic. Who are we? Who are you? How do you define yourself? Where does your identity come from? How do you find out more of who you are? Who does God say you are? These big issues of of identity or identifying yourself. And this is what he writes in this book. He says, to find who we truly are, we need to train the body to keep its place. And he's writing about fasting as a way to train the body to keep its place. What does he mean? Well, I think in, in our conversations about identity, trying to find out who we are, Often what I hear people saying or describing themselves has to do with their physical appearance or their physical self. We we tend to identify ourselves by our physical attributes and traits. And what fasting reminds us of as we deprive our body of certain things is that the body is not all of who you are. That your physical self is not the most important part of your identity. It is part of it. God gave you a physical self for a specific reason. But there's more to you, far more to you, than who you are on the outside. And Jesus affirms this. This is straight from Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 16. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What Jesus is saying here is if if you're interested in your true life, in the truest version of yourself, in truly being alive, and you try to, to, to add to it, to take from the world around you, to add to your life, you will lose it. But whoever loses their life, whoever gives away for me, 
will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the world yet lose their soul? Your soul is what Jesus is interested in here. Not just your physical self, but your spiritual self. What's going on on the inside? Because that's where our identity really is found. And we don't find it by taking on more things, by adding to ourselves, by winning. Jesus says we we find ourselves in what we let go of. We find our true life by the things we give up. By surrendering to God's power. By surrendering to God's identity for you. And so I wonder what you might need to let go of in the next 40 days. Maybe that's a more helpful way to think about fasting. Is there anything you're you're holding on to that is not helpful to you? That might be getting in the way of, of discovering more about who you are, who God created you to be. That's getting in between you and your relationship with God. Preventing you from discovering more about his life for you, the things that he wants for you. How he defines your identity, not just how you define it. What might that thing be? I ask myself that question fairly regularly. Is there something getting in my way that I might need to let go of? That I'm better off without? Because fasting is not for God. We don't do it to make him happy. It doesn't exist to to earn points. God gives us the spiritual practice of fasting for us, for your benefit, so that we can find out who we really are. So we can find our life by losing it, by giving away, by surrendering. And so I asked that question of myself several years ago. I was asking that question, is there anything getting in the way of me discovering more about who God really made me to be? And is there anything coming between me and my relationship with God? And In a moment of honesty, when I was finally ready to admit it, I realized that alcohol was what was getting in the way. That for a good season of my life, I drank too much. And I drank too often. And I wanted that to change. I wanted to give it up. Because I wanted to know who I really was. And I felt like that was getting in the way. And so for me, it was fasting. For other people, it might look like recovery or abstinence. I wonder if that might be the case for you. Fast forward to today, um, and I'm about a year away from finishing my doctorate studying uh, alcohol abuse and addiction recovery. And in that research, we do a lot of statistics. Um, we, We focus a lot on numbers, and there are a lot of them. Because for you, this might not be what comes to mind of something that would be helpful to let go of for the next 40 days, helpful to surrender. Um, But more and more, you might be in the minority because more and more people in our culture all the time are struggling with alcohol abuse. These are some statistics um, before the pandemic, and that that matters. Um, 14 and a half million people in the United States, which is a little more than 5% of our population, ages 12 and older struggle with alcohol use disorder. That's the medical designation for it. And of that, 414,000 people are between the ages of 12 and 17. 
So this isn't just a, an adult problem above the legal drinking age, but this is a, a human problem. We, we add to the, the global chaos, the global disorder, to the tune of about $250 billion a year in medical expenses because of alcohol-related diseases. That costs all of us. Um, 95,000 people die every year from alcohol-related deaths in the United States. Since the pandemic, um, more research is now finally being done because we can do it uh, on the effects of that on drinking. Um, anecdotally, you might just know that's obvious. Um, in 2020, the first full year of statistics that we were able to gather found that alcohol-related deaths went up 25% in one year across all age groups. It's a, a problem that keeps getting worse. So, again, you might be hearing this and saying, well, that's not really an issue for me. I don't really struggle with that. And that's fine. Um, this might be coming out of left field for you. There might be something else on your mind that I would definitely encourage you to pursue. But this was what it was for me, one of the things. And I found help letting it go, surrendering it, giving it up, fasting from it, whatever the, the language is that you would choose. And if, if that's you, if you feel like, yeah, for the next 40 days, what can I learn about myself? What can I learn about God if I let go of that thing? Could it make a difference? And maybe you might think, well, I could use some help with that. So um, I set up a, a daily encouragement email list. Uh, you can join that just by texting the word break to the number on the screen. Uh, this is totally anonymous. I, I don't have any data on it. It's not going to send me any contact information on you. It's just going to sign you up for daily encouragements to help stay on track because I think all of us could use a little help when we decide to make changes in our life, when we give up something that we might be used to. So if that's something that would help for you, feel free. Again, like I said, I wanted it to be anonymous. This isn't a hope thing, by the way. This is just a me thing. So um, <laughs> Pastor Scott, don't hold me. You know, account. This is not hope. This is just me. But if it helps, please feel free to jump in. Because what I found in doing this for myself is I was able to, again, realize more about who God created me to be, embrace more of my God-given identity, not by taking on more things, but by giving up, by surrendering. And what that does for us is it helps us in our relationship with Jesus because we realize, we begin to realize in the small things that we give up, surrender, we realize just how much Jesus gave up to rescue us, to set us free. It's something I don't think we really take enough time to, to sit and reflect on all that often. That again, Jesus, as a part of the Trinity of God, is eternal. That means that, that God the Son, Jesus, was eternal before he came. Jesus knew what it was like to live in paradise, in heaven. Jesus knew what it was like to live without pain at all, without sadness at all, without the chaos of this world, without death, without disease. Jesus knew what that was like. But because he saw, he knew that we are dust, that we're in trouble, he gave up all of that 
to come here for you and for me. The book of Philippians chapter 2 says that he gave up his divine privileges. He became, he made himself nothing. He ran into our existence to rescue us when we were too weak to get ourselves out. He came to us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. One of the most brutal ways you can experience death. Jesus chose that for us. Now, Jesus had the power to fight back. He did not have to do that. He was God. When the soldiers are ridiculing him on the cross, saying, command your angels to take you off of there, he could have done it. He could have come into our world uh, guns blazing, ready to fight, ready to take on the, the, the powers of this world, win a military victory, conquer all the evils for a time. But instead, what Jesus chose was to empty himself, surrender himself, give himself up, the Bible says. Sacrifice himself for us. Because in that sacrifice, that painful moment of emptying himself, that's when we all gain eternal life. That we don't get by taking. Jesus doesn't win by fighting. We win because Jesus chose to lose. We, we gain by giving up the way that Jesus did. So I want to show one more video or one more clip from this movie. Uh, this is a little bit more of an intense clip, um, a few more uh, special effects. And just remember that's what they are, special effects and makeup. Um, I don't show this clip to be shocking or to um, offend anyone. But when I, when I saw this movie and I saw this part of it, what I thought of was Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to his father, trying to figure out if there was any other way for him to rescue us. But knowing that he was going to be obedient to run into the most awful part of this life to get us out, to rescue us and to set us free. That's what I thought of. So as we watch this together, keep in mind all of the things that Jesus has done for us, given up for us, so that we could be saved. Let's watch. I'm scared. I'm scared. Let's go help the pain. No, don't, don't, don't you do that. Come on. Come on, Smitty, you stay with me. Let's go, we gotta move.
What is it you want of me? I don't understand. I can't hear you.